I just want to read you a quote that really, um, in some sense, kind of orientates um, what it is I want to be talking about today. And it's a quote from What is Philosophy on um, the philosophical trinity that Deleuze and Guattari identified. It's on page 76 of What is Philosophy. There they, they say, philosophy presents three elements. The pre-philosophical plane it must lay out, imminence. The persona or personae it must invent and bring to life, insistence. And the philosophical concepts it must create, consistency. Laying out, inventing and creating constitute the philosophical trinity. Diagrammatic, personalistic and intensive features. Within their final collaborative work, this work that we've been looking at, what is philosophy, there is elaborated an extraordinary understanding of the crucial and irreducible affinity between the elements of philosophy identified here and the elements of the non-philosophical fields of science and art. This essential affinity resides in of creativity, i.e. the creation of concepts in philosophy, the creation of functions in science, and the creation of what they term percepts and affects in a work of art. Now, fundamental to such creative activity is always a certain initial diagrammatic process, whereby a plane of imminence is set out. The initial diagrammatic function within philosophy, namely the elaboration of a pre-philosophical plane of imminence, necessary for the subsequent creation of concepts, has a very clear resonance with an analogous diagrammatic function within the arts. Such an analogy is illuminated to a certain degree by Delilah and Quattari's elaboration of the nature of artistic creativity in what is philosophy, but it is perhaps more explicitly within Deleuze's understanding of Francis Bacon's creative uh, painterly practice in the logic of sensation um, that it's stated uh, the most clearly. In this work, Deleuze argues that Francis Bacon offers a very clear example of the type of creative pedagogy necessarily provided by all art to our understanding of the practice of philosophy. Both activities involve taking what Deleuze and Atari term a witch's flight. This diagrammatic element involves taking what they call the witch's flight. Indeed, it is precisely Bacon's artistic efforts to somewhat transversally, in and through the material of paint, uh, think. His effort to elaborate a specifically painterly logic of sensation through a peculiar and arresting form of abstract figural work, uh, which so draws Deleuze towards Bacon's work. And in this paper, what I will try to do is, um, first of all, the first section of the paper will begin by... Um, outlining some of the key aspects of the necessary diagrammatic element within philosophy, um, with particular attention paid to certain key aspects of what is philosophy that we've been looking at in recent weeks, namely chapters one to three. Um, before, in the second part of the paper, turning my attention to Deleuze's work, The Logic of Sensation. The purpose of this paper, which is a kind of work in progress for me, um, and actually forms an important part of um, a book that I'm writing on Deleuze and painting um, is this attempt to understand the precise nature of the consonance between the diagrammatic 
in philosophy and the diagrammatic in art, and the necessary pedagogic relation that exists between the two with regard to this crucial, Deleuze and Guattari argues, this crucial prerequisite to all creative activity. Okay, so first then, philosophy's diagrammatic element. According to Deleuze and Guattari, philosophy is nothing less than a rigorous attempt to comprehend through creative concepts the radically impersonal and virtual forces and flows of becoming actual if you like, to discover the real conditions of ontological actuality. And this requires a genuinely radical and experimental form of philosophical thought. Indeed, the conception of thought as the creation of concepts, namely uh, a type of pragmatic constructivism, and the attempt to instantiate a radical type of imminent self-movement within thought through those creative concepts, kind of pure self-ordering with your thought, are, I want to suggest, the Lerner Butari's most decisive contributions to philosophy. Philosophy is conceived as a creative ontology of the virtual. And such an approach necessitates an understanding of the activity of philosophy as a creation of concepts, as a moment of real invention. Philosophical concept for Deleuze and Guattari is never something merely given but it is that which always has to be genuinely created as something new in the face of the intolerable and the moment of the I don't know what. They repeatedly insist throughout what is philosophy that one can only really think where what is to be thought is not already given, when what is to be thought is not governed by what they call the forces of recognition. In his early work, Difference and Repetition, Deleuze writes... The criticism that must be addressed to this image of thought is precisely that it has based its supposed principle upon extrapolation from certain facts, particularly insignificant facts such as recognition, everyday banality in person, as though thought should not seek its models among stranger and more compromising adventures. As we saw last week in the, in the reading group, um, for Deleuze and Guattari, the concept always needs an idiot in order to be realised. Specifically, this, what they call this new idiot. The new idiot who, they write, wants to turn the absurd into the highest power of thought. In other words, to create. And this is an idiocy born of the intolerable frustration of an encounter with the real. What Deleuze calls the event, with its chaos, its multiplicity, its becoming. It's a new form of idiocy born and cultivated through exasperation, the lack of established conceptual resources to be able to deal with the singularity of the event. Creation is an action always taken in the last resort. Um, and as, as Deleuze writes, uh, sort of said in his Leibniz lectures um, in 1980, it's the, the moment of philosophical creation is always enacted as a kind of scream. It's the scream of frustration that gives uh, rise, to, gives birth to uh, philosophical invention. So philosophical endeavour becomes configured as a zone where dynamic creativity associated with the non-philosophical and conceptual thinking become essentially related. So the preservation of a radically non-philosophical zone as the non-conceptual 
and the exploration of philosophy's irreducible relationship to it forms a vital task involving what Deleuze and Guattari call uh, a pedagogy of the concept. And crucial to this task, then, of the pedagogy of the concept is a rigorous analysis of the conditions of creativity associated with philosophical activity. And that, that philosophical activity must always necessarily, then, make reference to the vital, dynamic, and sovereign activities of the non-philosophical, namely the sciences and the arts, for Deleuze and Guattari. But if we look outside of what is philosophy, we see that all of Deleuze's different work on art pursue the specific logics of sensation associated with the different fields of art, such as music, literature, cinema, and painting, as part of a broader pedagogic effort to open up different multiple paths of creative uh, differentiation, of rhizomatic concept creation, and the instantiation of vital movement in philosophical thought. His work seeks to emphasise not the conditions then under which a specific work of art is created, but rather how the work of art can ultimately reveal something to philosophy about the diagrammatic conditions of creative activity, of creative practice itself. Now Deleuze privileges the specifically impersonal autopoetic forces and rhythms that are elaborated diagrammatically within uh, a given work of art. Namely, the intrinsic self-ordering and creative self-positing associated with the different materials utilised in the varied fields of art in order to disclose dynamic potentials for genuinely thinking the new in philosophy, for diagrammatically laying out a plane of imminence for thought, so the concern becomes the diagrammatic in cinema, the diagrammatic in painting, the diagrammatic in literature. For Deleuze and Guattari, then, philosophy is no longer concerned with providing definitions of fixed essences, but much more with describing virtual events and processes. Philosophy, they write, can no longer be content to, quote, brandish ready-made old concepts like skeletons intended to intimidate any creation. Rather, philosophy must experiment and create new and divergent lines of thought by creating new concepts through the elaboration of new images of thought and new conceptual personae to inhabit them. And all of the divergent lines, all of the lines of differentiation then, are to be understood as lines of creation. And similarly, all acts of creation, including the creation of concepts in philosophy, when genuinely understood, amount to the inscription of lines of differentiation. Creation, for them, is always born of the virtual pre-individual field, the plane of imminence, which uh, concept creation taps as a reservoir. Philosophical, then, always involves a counter-effectuation <coughs> of the real. So it's a movement from the actual or the given state of affairs. The concept has to return consistently upstream to the pre-individual event or the virtual. That's where the concept is truly, they write, at home. This return upstream, this movement back to the pre-individual problematic conditions of experience can only amount to a work of creation. 
a work of invention. Because there can simply be no pre-existing means for doing so. In this respect, both the work of art and the work of philosophy are moments of radical creativity, moment, moments of real invention. For Deleuze and Guattari, the art of philosophy, the, the degree to which there is an art involved in the activity of philosophy, is the creation of concepts emerging from a fundamental encounter rather than a pre-existing skeletal field with a presupposed image of thought that is, if you like, seen as enabling the subsequent creation of concepts. And clearly, what Deleuze and Guattari understand here by creating involves the activity of the philosopher who they describe in what is philosophy as the friend of the concept. However, this conceptually creative activity on the part of the philosopher is separate from and in a process though in mediation with an outside realm which they call the plane of immanence which creatively and autonomously self-posits that is the vital and infinite self-movement of what they call pure thought the difference and repetition Deleuze have written of this outside realm as that which literally forces us to think as that which is at the basis of what they call a fundamental encounter Deleuze writes its primary characteristic is that it can only be sensed. In this sense, it is opposed to recognition. It is not a sensible being, but the being of the sensible. It is not the given, but that by which the given is given. It is therefore, in a certain sense, the imperceptible. Sensibility, in the presence of that which can only be sensed, and is at the same time imperceptible, finds itself then before its own limit, the sign and raises itself to the level of a transcendental exercise to the nth degree. So what the sensible opens up here, or what it opens itself up through the sensible, is a dimension of the transcendental, or the virtual, which shelters the genetic conditions of the real. Thought itself is born in that opening, forced into existence through a, a certain irresistible attraction. Ideas have to be wrested from rather than being represented on the basis of actual phenomena themselves then. The aim is to make an, the certain new forces visible, formulating the problems then that they pose and inciting a kind of experimental activity around them. And it's via a type of radical cognitive experimentation which involves a suspension of the apparatus of conventional categorical representation, a systematic disruption of all of, 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 all of the faculties, that the philosopher must strive towards. And it's this cognitive experimentation that I think Deleuze and Guattari are referring to as the necessary diagrammatic element within philosophy, namely that activity which involves the initial elaboration of a plane of immanence as a necessary condition for the subsequent activity of the creation of conceptual personae and concept creation. Genuine creation is always ex nihilo, as it were. If, by ex nihilo, one understands the fact that the differences produced are in no way the mere actualization of possibilities which they resemble. But they are differences born of the pre-individual conditioning differences and altogether heterogeneous to such differences. That's precisely, I think, the originality of Deleuze's position. Its ability to to construct a transcendental ontology 
yet one that is concerned to bring out the real and not merely possible conditions of existence of actual phenomena. For Deleuze, the virtual is actualized through a process that is itself neither virtual nor actual, and that involves the diagrammatic creation of differences. The actual differs essentially or in nature from the virtual, or are entirely generated from within the virtual. The difference in nature between the virtual and the actual is not so much given as it is then produced by difference itself. It is a difference that belongs to nature itself. So the thinker has to think on the basis of this unthinkable exteriority which lies at the heart of thought, an inexplicable imminence upon which the anomalous image of philosophical thought is deployed in the concept. Now, as we've seen in the reading that we've been doing over the last few weeks, the way in which Deleuze and Tari understand the plane of imminence is that it has to be recognised as a pure movement or an infinite movement. Um, and here, movement is considered to be an infinite movement, or rather, if you like, the movement of the infinite. And since all philosophical concepts have to be first created, this pure movement itself has to, in some sense, then, be radically conceptless, and represents what Deleuze and Tari considered to be the first necessary diagrammatic element within philosophy, this laying out of a plane of imminence. plane of imminence initiates an image of thought as a purely conceptless plane of infinity, as opposed to the history of Western metaphysics that had always operated with a certain finite image of thought always already infested with concepts, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. They write on page 37 of What is Philosophy that the plane of imminence is not a concept. Um, that is, or can be thought, but rather the image of thought. The image of thought gives itself of what it means to think, to make use of thought, to find one's bearings in thought. Thought demands only movement, that can be carried, though, to infinity. What thought claims by right, what it selects, is infinite movement or the movement of the infinite. It is this that constitutes the image of thought. So, Deleuze and Guattari, then, maintain here a strict separation between the conceptual realm and what they call this pre-philosophical plane of thought, uh, which they note is actually akin in some ways, to Heidegger's pre-ontological understanding of being. But crucially, this is a differentiation maintained within philosophy. It's a task that has to be uh, taken up by philosophy, the maintenance of that differentiation within philosophy. For them, this pure realm of pure thought, as the plane of imminence, is an utterly impersonal, self-positing field of forces which is laid out and then subsequently constitutes the possibility of all philosophical thought, namely as the subsequent creation of concepts and their movement. They write, if philosophy begins with the creation of concepts, then the plane of imminence must be regarded as the pre-philosophical, or even as the non-philosophical, the power of a one-all, like a moving desert, that concepts come to populate Indifference and repetition, 
Deleuze goes as far to say that, quote, thought is primarily trespass and violence, <coughs> the enemy. And nothing presupposes philosophy. Everything begins with what he calls misosophy. This pure movement of thought and being is thus the crucial non-philosophical, the misosophical uh, element implicated within every conceptually creative act of philosophy. This pure movement or plane of imminence is essentially then a virtual field in which concepts are produced. It's not thinkable by itself. It can only be defined then and mapped with reference to the concepts which come to populate it. Plane of imminence is a kind of intuitive ground whose infinite movements are subsequently fixed or territorialised by coordinates constructed by the finite movements of the concept. And the, but the construction of concepts always refers back to this pre-philosophical field of plane of imminence. As they write on page 41, this plane of imminence is given as the internal condition of thought. It is thought's non-philosophical image, which does not exist outside of philosophy, although philosophy must always presuppose it. It is presupposed not in a way that one concept may refer to others, but in a way that concepts themselves always refer to a non-conceptual understanding. So what they seem to be saying here is that the plane of imminence has in some sense to be philosophically constructed, diagrammatically, yet it's also that which constructs itself through philosophy, that is itself positive, is it once then always already there, or presupposed, and something that has to be laid out and constructed, which is to say, posed. In other words, they say, the plane of imminence is presupposed only insofar as it will have been posed, but posed only insofar as it will have been presupposed. Philosophy, they write, defined as the creation of concepts implies a distinct but inseparable presupposition. Philosophy is at once concept creations and instituting of the plane. Concept is the beginning of philosophy, but the plane is its instituting. The plane is clearly not a program, design, end or means. It is a plane of imminence that constitutes the absolute ground of all philosophy. It's earth, it, or deterritorialization, the foundation on which it creates its concepts. Both the creation of concepts and the instituting of the plane are required like two wings or fins. So, the creative activity of the philosopher, this friend of the concept, involves then this ongoing process of mediation with and the inclusion of the vitality of the non-philosophical plane of thought, this plane of pure imminence. Indeed, conceptual creation as an act of philosopher and the autonomous self-positing imminent movement of thought are mutually implied. There are two aspects of one and the same process. Now they clearly re come to reconfigure philosophy 
if it is not to fall interminably into cliché, as having to preserve the plane of imminence through misosophy, to maintain it through an irreducible relationship to the non-philosophical fields of both the arts and sciences. And more importantly, they argue that the vital creativity associated with philosophy in its conceptual movement, in some sense, rests upon it being necessarily intertwined and co-implicated within the autopoiesis, the creative self-positive, associated with those non-philosophical realms. Contemporary philosophy has to take on other measures, they suggest, even the measures that, quote, belong to the order of dreams of pathological processes, esoteric experiences, drunkenness, and excess. And to an even greater degree, contemporary philosophy erects itself, they suggest, on the ground of something that does not think, an unthinkable, imperceptible exteriority. And this brings us, I think, to the precise relevance here of Deleuze's discussion of what he calls the essential catastrophe and hysteria implicit within the art of painting in the logic of sensation. Here, Bacon is embraced by Deleuze as a painter who celebrates and productively negotiates with and maintains the irrational, the unthinkable, the imperceptible via the implicit catastrophe and hysteria of the art of painting. And this something that does not think in us returns as a question concerning then the possibility of thought for Deleuze. Possibility that I am not yet thinking. So I want to uh, turn my attention now to Deleuze's specific remarks in chapter 12 of The Logic of Sensation on the nature of the diagrammatic in Bacon's creative um, uh, uh, process. In, in Deleuze's study of Bacon, the artist becomes configured as the modern paradigm of a painter concerned with the expressive materiality of paint and the conveyance of intense modes of sensation, which are distanced from the auspices of representation and narration, i.e. from cliché. Bacon's work is seen as resisting cliché, through circumventing narrative relations between figures and concentrating on what Bacon himself calls matters of fact or the brutality of fact. And for Deleuze, this concentration enables the, uh, Bacon to begin to present the pure possibilities of what can be done with the materiality of paint itself. And his understanding of Bacon's paintings rests on understanding them as conveying a very special type of violence. A violence not of representation, but a violence of sensation. For Deleuze, this is a violence associated with what he says calls colour and line. A violence, a static or potential violence. A violence of reaction and expression. And contrary to many existing and continually emerging existentialist readings, of Bacon's work, Deleuze argues that paint, Bacon's paintings are actually to be understood as nothing more 
than an interlocking series of experimental rhythmic assemblages in vivid colours of flesh and bone. Here, the broken tones of flesh and bone operate as limits to a complex rhythmic interplay where each are pushing the other to its limit. Bone expands in and through flesh in spasmodic movements and flesh compresses and descends into bone in order to give birth to this heightened sense of the brutality of fat. As Deleuze writes in Difference and Repetition, it is only through a certain abandonment of figuration and representation, the resistance against cliché signalled by much contemporary art, that, he writes, we find the lived reality of a sub-representational domain. Yet, at the same time, as Deleuze himself recognises, this distancing from uh, conventional figuration and representation in Bacon's work seemingly occurs, though, within the simultaneous elevation of the figure. The diagrammatic disruption of narrative form emerges from the instantiation, though, of entirely new modes of relation between such figures on the canvas, modes which Deleuze denotes as primarily rhythmic. This idea that we're not to read into Bacon's work any particular narrative story uh, you know, going on with the figures across triptychs, the figures in single canvases, the figures in the double paintings, that we're just to see them as rhythms, rhythmic interplays. The composed figure, field, objects and other figures on the canvas, Deleuze argues, quote, interrelate in a way that is free of any symbolic undercurrent whatsoever. Indeed, for Deleuze, they're just to be understood as rhythmic experiments in painting sensation, a form of ceaseless experimentation held at a certain distance from the operative constraints of representation and narration. Now, in chapter 12, after elaborating at some length this particular uh, way of understanding Bacon's work, which is you know, this, this effort to sort of break from uh, what might be called overly existentialist readings of, of, of Bacon's work. Um, Deleuze turns his attention to uh, Bacon's creative practice. Um, and he says, he asks, what does the initial prefigurative act of painting consist for Bacon? How does he initially proceed in order to avoid the figurative and probabilistic givens which inhabit the canvas? How does he thus avoid clichés from the very beginning? And there's this moment in The Logical Sensation where he talks about the fact that the, the bare canvas is always already infested with clichés. It's always already infested with lots and lots and lots of historically determined givens. Um, now more so than ever, you know, with the advent of um, photography in particular. Um, the, the flat surface of the canvas is absolutely infested with all sorts of representational givens. How is Bacon going to break with um, the clichés that inhabit the empty canvas? And he writes on page 99, the very opening section of chapter 12, 
and this is something that I think very very significant for me um, and I think absolutely absolutely true absolutely at one with the spirit of Deleuze and Guattari and what is philosophy particularly the first line he says we do not listen closely enough to what painters have to say do not listen closely enough to what painters have to say they say that the painter is already in the canvas where he or she encounters all the figurative and probabilistic givens that occupy and preoccupy the canvas they say an entire battle takes place on the canvas between the painter and these givens there is thus a preparatory work that belongs to painting fully and yet precedes the act of painting as Deleuze goes on to explain for Bacon, this initial preparatory work is defined by the making of random marks on the canvas, by cleaning, sweeping, brushing and wiping the canvas, which serves Bacon uh, to clear out certain locales and zones on the canvas. He, as we've seen in the interview, there are certain moments in, in Bacon's work where um, it involves the throwing of paint at a canvas from various angles and at various speeds. And the, all of these acts presuppose the existence of certain figurative givens on the canvas, certain clichés inhabiting the canvas. And it is precisely such givens that are to be removed by such gestures, by being cleaned, brushed, swept, wiped away, or else covered over. And interestingly, in the... Uh, wonderful interviews with David Sylvester that Deleuze relies so closely on in the logic of sensation um, Bacon himself calls these acts a type of graph or diagram and I think it's in those interviews that one finds the origin of the, this really really crucial term the diagram in Deleuze's work it's actually, it's actually Bacon's own term and I think again and again and again we find ways in which Bacon is talking about his own practice that he introduces bizarre kind of discourse, bizarre notions, bizarre strange ideas to try and communicate the nature of his expression. And what we find in the logic of sensation is that actually Deleuze adopts many of those concepts um, and you know, d does that usual kind of Deleuzean thing of actually co-opting certain kind of existing ideas and actually kind of then sort of forcing uh, lots of things into that concept that it didn't actually contain or placing it into strange juxtapositions. But I think the origin of the diagram, the notion of the diagram or the diagrammatic is part of Bacon's own uh, 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 language. Um, and Sylvester, the, 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 the uh, particular bit where he talks about the diagram in the interview comes from um, there's a, a, a beautiful painting of George Dyer where George Dyer's jaw stretches across the canvas um, the, the length of the canvas and Sylvester says what were you trying to do here by ex the extension of the jaw line up here and Bacon says I was trying to introduce into the canvas a graph, a diagram he said I was, what I was trying to do was introduce into the head the distances of the Sahara. This just doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, the, the distances of the Sahara in the head, yet 
Deleuze says we have to listen closely to what Bacon is saying here at that moment. We have to follow through the sense that Bacon is trying very closely here to develop in relation to his own work. What does he mean by the introduction of a disruptive graph or diagram into the head to dismantle faciality at this moment? So the diagram is to be understood then as the prefigural preparation of the canvas, the initial pre-acts of painting. It's a series of shades, colours, scratches and layers of material set down prior to the actual delineation of the figure. In Bacon, this process consists of a series of haphazard lines, coloured spots and pitched paint. It's a physical rather than a visual act of painting that lays out a ground that is in contradiction with the notion of a pre-planned figure. This is an automatic or random ground that Deleuze says threatens actually over and over again to engulf the act of figuration it prepares for. It's always a risk that it risks engulfing any productive figuration to come. So in that sense Deleuze claims that the diagrammatic, particularly in the art of painting, is hysterical. It's a kind of physical catastrophe that threatens the act of painting at every single moment. And to the degree that, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, you know, I paint and have painted, um, and the degree to which, you know, uh, my own work brings any insight into this is that, I, you know, yes, that is absolutely right. That at any moment, particularly when you're so absolutely rubbish as I am, that anything that you're actually kind of trying to do, you know, over time with painting is constantly under threat. So, you know, one or two false moves and the whole thing is ruined. You know, it, uh, one or two overworkings of a, of a painting, it ruins it. So th this catastrophe, this diagrammatic element, accompanies almost every single movement what one makes in a painting. I think this is something that, that Bacon embraces. He's absolutely driven to keep that risk alive. You know, at the expense of 90% you know, of his work actually ending up being uh, thrown away. But he embraces this catastrophe. Now, according to Deleuze, the diagram in painting allows for the emergence of another possible world. The marks associated with the diagram are irrational, involuntary, accidental, free and random. They are non-representative, non-illustrative, non-narrative. For Deleuze, they're no longer even significant or signifiers. They are a-signifying traits. They're almost blind manual marks attest, though, to the intrusion of another type of world into the visual world of figuration. To that degree, they remove the painting from the optical organisation that would seek to reign over it, rendering it always already figurative. Bacon's hand intervenes in order to, to, to disrupt its own dependence and deconstruct the sovereign optical organisation. Here, one can no longer see anything. It's as if one is in a chaos or catastrophe. 
But this diagram serves to ceaselessly disrupt a certain pre-existing sense, to disrupt cliché, and allow for the emergence of entirely new sense. And because such marks are destined to provide the figure, it is essential that they break with the conventional codes of figuration as such. Thus, such marks are not <coughs> sufficient in themselves to break with figuration, but must provide a certain function of utility. They mark out certain possibilities of fact, but they do not, of themselves, yet constitute the fact, the pictorial fact. In order to be configured into a fact, namely to evolve into a consistent figure, these moments of chaos have to be re-injected into the visual whole. And as Deleuze says, it will give the eye another power, as well as an object that will no longer be figurative. And the diagram evinced within Bacon's work is indeed a type of chaos, a catastrophe, but it is also the germ of an order of rhythm. So it's a violent chaos in relation to the figurative givens, but it's also a germ of rhythm in relation to the new order of painting, a new and emergent sense, a new and emergent logic of sensation. As Bacon says, such work unlocks the bells of sensation. And Deleuze argues that the entire significance of Bacon's diagrammatic path is the recognition that the diagram must not eat away at the painting. It must always remain limited in space and time. It must remain operative, functional and controlled. So the violent methods associated with the diagrammatic must not be given free reign. And the necessary catastrophe must not be allowed to submerge the whole. Be simply because the diagram is the possibility of a fact rather than a fact. And this is it's certainly the way in which they set up um, the understanding of Bacon as treading this like extremely difficult sort of middle path between uh, order and chaos. Um, you know, the, 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 the sort of paradigm of a painter that sort of allows this diagram to submerge the whole of the canvas um, and become fact, you know, to the degree that it does, is able to become fact, is, is Jackson Pollock, where Bacon, uh, Deleuze says, you know, that the whole painting has become absolutely infested with chaos. The, the chaos of Pollock's, uh, in, in Pollock's work is not productively utilised um, as a possibility of fact. It's just been allowed to proliferate. Or equally, on the other side, that he talks about sort of a pure optical abstraction, kind of work of, uh, of, of, of de Kooning, for example, where um, you know, de Kooning hasn't allowed any um, injection of chaos to uh, 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 creep onto the canvas. It's just about the, the imposition of another sort of sovereign optical code over a representationist code. But Bacon is understood <coughs> to tread this very, very difficult kind of middle line between the two. So, for Bacon, not all figurative givens actually have to disappear. A new figuration, that of the figure, should emerge from the diagram and render a block of sensation something clear and precise, something consistent, or as Deleuze and Guattari in what is philosophy write, 
the artwork must be able to stand up. <coughs> so the diagrammatic always begins the act of painting, lays out the pre-pictorial plane of imminence, and it's precisely this creative practice bound up with the diagrammatic elaboration, which is also to be understood to form one of the three fundamental, fundamental elements of philosophy, albeit a pre-philosophical pre or non-philosophical moment. So to go back... Uh, you know, for, for a moment there to, 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 to sort of the, the thing that I began the paper with to, is, is that I'm trying to suggest there is a kind of resonance going on here with regard to the way in which Deleuze is understanding um, this kind of diagrammatic aspect of uh, Bacon's creativity to be absolutely consonant with um, a, a, a sort of necessarily creative moment uh, within the philosophical trinity Within modernist painting, where abstraction comes to prominence, the materiality of the paint itself comes to articulate and express forces. Matter itself becomes the crucial expressive component of the artwork. And matter movement carries with it certain traits, certain virtual singularities, as implicit or virtual forms to come. And it is the potential for material self-ordering, then, with which... The, the artist has negotiated. And arguably this is what Deleuze is saying that Bacon is so successful at doing. He's able to negotiate with the self-ordering traits of the material of oil paint itself. You know, Bacon himself just keeps coming back in interviews to sort of talk about just how utterly seduced he is by, by oil paint. And was, since the moment he picked up oil paint and started to use it, that it had this extraordinarily kind of infinite field of productive possibilities. Form is something suggested then from the material itself. Forms are created out of the suggested virtual potentials of the matter rather than being something which is preconceived in the mind of the artist and then imposed upon a purely passive matter. Hence the significance for Deleuze, I think, of Bacon's type of diagrammatic figuration. It's the creation of resemblance, the creation of figuration, but through profoundly non-resembling, non-figurative means. The artist on the aesthetic plane of composition, such as a painter like Bacon, in some sense has to be understood as surrendering to the matter of paint. And following its virtual singularity. And by attending to these traits, the artist allows it to speak to their instinct and devises a whole range of practical strategies to bring out these virtualities, to actualise them as sensible possibilities. And Deleuze is arguing that Bacon utilises the diagram precisely as a way uh, to constitute what he calls an analogical language in paint, a painterly logic a painterly sense. And for those of you who are interested, there's a, a wonderful book, which I think, you know, I mean, I, despite the fact that the guy never mentions the words, um, it's in, in, in his other work he does, this, this guy James Elkins, who's written this extraordinary book called What Painting Is. Um, and Elkins argues in that book that, that painters historically have been engaged in a kind of um, 
a, a kind of mystical, almost kind of quasi-mystical process of working out the, the sense of the materiality of pain. That it, it, it's a, akin to a sort of alchemical process. And actually, Elkins uses the figure of alchemy um, as, as, a, as his kind of particular sort of theoretical model to sort of elaborate by analogy um, how painters negotiate material in order to create a kind of um, a certain logic to the material that they use that is very specific to paint. Now, according to Deleuze, the utilisation, though, of the diagram in painting by Bacon consists, then, of three, uh, three elements, which I'll just go over very, very briefly before closing. first aspect of Bacon's diagrammatic process is that, in contrast with the two extremes of contemporary abstraction, which I mentioned a moment ago, which in the book, uh, you know, it's almost like Pollock and de Kooning are playing these kind of two poles of contemporary abstraction. Bacon always begins um, with the uh, movement towards figurative form, to the extent to which he must always simply begin there because of the inevitable figural gibbons which always in, uh, already inhabit the blank canvas, which are prevalent through photography, cinema, and other dominant forms of contemporary representation. But the second stage is that Bacon then produces a catastrophic intervention of the diagram to scramble it. Through the introduction, over the top of those pre-pictorial figurations, images, and you know, etc., gibbons, uh, through the introduction of purely accidental material components of paint, thrown, scrubbing, rubbed, scraped injections of paint. For Bacon, a fundamental act of painting is defined as precisely making random material marks. Cleaning, sweeping, brushing, wiping, throwing. Precisely through the introduction of them that the prepictorial clichés are, to a certain extent, removed. It's at this stage, then, that the diagrammatic represents a fundamental prefigural preparation of a canvas. Series of shades, colours, scratches, and layers set down prior to the germination of the figure. Such a process then serves to destroy nascent figuration and gives new figuration a chance to emerge. Third, then, stage that Deleuze identified is that Bacon utilises such a catastrophe to allow the materiality of paint to facilitate the emergence of form, a completely new type of figural resemblance. For Deleuze, the diagram, understood in this sense, allows the emergence of another world into the visual world of figuration, another form of creative individuation. However, being itself a catastrophe, the diagram must not be permitted to merely create catastrophe. It has to be grasped as productive as fecund, of a figuration to come. So, this route, identified here through the paradigmatic figure of Bacon, 
is of a diagram involving a continual injection of the manual into the visual. So the injection of the non-visual into the visual in the form of the manual. So, so it's almost as if painting is holding itself into a certain controlled relationship with the non-painful, with the <coughs> manual. So in order to achieve this passage, the dominant structures of recognition and rationality have in some sense to be suspended or counter-affected by the artist. As Bacon says in the interviews, painting will only catch the mystery of reality if the painter doesn't know how to do it. I know what I want to do, I just don't know how to bring it about. And once such a counter-effectuation has been achieved through experimentation, the forces of virtual multiplicity have to then become something to be struggled with aesthetically. And its productive differential vitality put to work has to be allowed to breed forms, breed multiplicities and foldings in the visual space of the work, but without its chaotic and anarchic energy destroying the overall cohesion of the work. So to conclude this paper, I want to try to show is that it is via a similar type of radical cognitive experimentation involving a suspension of the apparatus of conventional categorical representation, systematic disruption of faculty, diagrammatic procedure, if you will, that the philosopher has to strive towards a genuine thought of the virtual. And that's the consonance between the diagrammatic procedure in both philosophy and art. It's that which is flight undertaken by both. But it also demonstrates the degree to which philosophy has to hold itself into a necessary pedagogic relationship to the catastrophic procedures in art. For example, Bacon's negotiation with catastrophe. In order to learn divergent new ways of laying out the plane of inference for philosophical thought. Philosophical thought. Hence, I think the remarks in What is Philosophy regarding the, superior, the inherent superiority of art when it comes to creativity. It's, it's art that, um, that lays out the conditions of creativity from which philosophy must learn. Um, and for Deleuze, it's a matter of uh, diagnosing and examining um, all of the diagrammatic, different diagrammatic procedures in the various fields of art that philosophy has to um, ceaselessly bring itself into relation with. Okay, thank you very much. I was wondering actually, thinking about this, I not know if you applied to Bacon, I was very much so, but I was just trying to think about art. He really studied this model. Well, maybe like, it's not, I can't think in art, but I know like in, like the Dardis and Bordley, for instance, using all the like generation techniques and I know this is a, this certain musical artists who do it try and introduce you know, aleatoric elements to music to try and bring out mm -hmm. particular structures. I mean, I don't know anybody knows any more about painting. One, one, 
a couple that come to mind for me, just because one is one that Deleuze and Guattari also talk about, Kafka, um, and the idea of the law machine in the trial. I think those of you came yesterday to the lecture on Kafka um, is equally seen as a diagrammatic procedure. The idea that, that, that you just take the sort of principle of the law and you push it to its kind of hyperbolic extreme so that the law machine starts to just build all sorts of new and unheard of kind of relations. Every, you know, everybody's engaged in the law. You know, everything is related to the law. Every site in the trial is related to the law. And it's, you know, they talk about this idea that in the trial it's a form of diagram. The other, um, someone not that, that Deleuze and Guattari don't talk about, is a Greek composer called Xenakis, who, as a compositional technique, at a certain stage, introduced an abstract machine um, as, as a way of, of, of composing increasingly complicated electronic music, um, and introduced you know, incredibly sophisticated uh, uh, kind of levels of mathematics as a compositional machine that, that would, in some sense, take any kind of idea of human sort of volition out of the picture. And it's almost like you know, the idea that something uh, radically kind of almost non-musical enters into the sort of compositional um, uh, procedure. Um, but that's just two examples that I thought. But but why Rothko, Steve? I mean, and what's it with Rothko? Well, it's just thinking along the uh, lines of the, again the aviator. Uh, so just Rothko uses the uh, the preparation of the canvas, the um, spinning of the canvas to let the paint dry, and so on, and working with the interface, and so on. So, <coughs> so it's almost like kind of manual gestures that are intervening certain point there with Rothko. Mm -hmm. I don't know a great deal about how Rothko prepared um, prepared the canvases. Can you just say a bit? Um, I wish I could, but I think I just told you everything I know. <laughs> <laughs> he works in very thin layers. He just builds up. Mm. just keeps building, building, building. Um, but this idea of, you said, spinning the canvases, for example, I didn't, I wasn't aware. Yeah, if you look on the... Um, I can't remember the names of the ones they've got in that bizarre little temple in the middle of the table. But, um, you look at them, there's, there's lines where the painters run horizontally across the painting and vertically down the painting and so on. Um, you know, where painters are allowed to uh, blow in the canvas mm -hmm. and turn different angles and so on. So I know that I saw one of the surrealists, I think, because <coughs> I'm not actually sure. Um, employed a technique of covering a, a rag of paint and physically pressing it onto the canvas and then pulling it away. Um, is so that earned? I think so. Is it, it's, I think so. I'll find out. Um, but it needs very kind. He used it to make these landscapes mm -hmm. and get these kind of weird stonal biological spires and all of the kind of shading work is done by this random method of pulling away around. Yeah. yeah, that is um, there's one thing called after the flood, which is this kind of extraordinary kind of, um, apocalyptic vision. Uh, you know, there's a kind of bizarre kind of bird man sort of in the yeah. foreground and this 
Yeah, that's right. It's very well into this modern way, obviously, because it's something that's random, taken and made, you know, pictorial. But I mean, is it the case that um, at different resolutions, at different closeness to the canvas, when you're very close up, you have the chaotic materiality of the paint, and as you move back from the canvas, it makes sense in a figurative way, which is what you have with Suzanne, isn't it? I mean, Suzanne knew that. He wrote about that. He talked about it quite a lot. But the, the chaos in Suzanne is at a very close distance to the canvas, and that's where he could feel things going wrong or going right, and the risk and the descent into chaos. But when you step back from it, uh, painting of Mount Saint-Victoire is always figurative. It's always the same shape. It's also, I mean, I just sort of went to, to the National on Monday and was looking at Monet, and it's the same with, with, with Monet, is that, that kind of at a certain distance it's chaos, on, on absolute chaos. And, this, and Alkins in his book talks at great length about, about Monet's um, really, really sophisticated, complex, kind of chaotic layer in the painting. But actually, when you stand back yeah. from that, uh, you know, it's just an incredible kind of vibrant figuration. But is it that just a matter of size? Because it always says, I haven't been to the exhibition in the mood, but no, I it's heard that it's the scale of the painting has to be more than No, I, I think, I mean, there was a painting I saw quite a while ago from Monet, which was very, very small painting actually, only about sort of so big. But actually, if you were to stand at such a distance from it, you know, kind of here, it, it's chaos. It's absolutely nothing. And you look at, you know, and it's supposed to be an arboretum, but actually you kind of stand six feet back, and it just suddenly kind of, you know, emerges into form. But actually, you know, when when Monet's working on it at a certain distance, you know, it's constant negotiation between. And it's it's, it's more, you know, it's miraculous. But I, I agree. I mean, you know, some of those there's one in the National Gallery, which is the. Um, you know, a kind of painting of irises, which is massive. Um, yeah, and yeah, the, the sense of, of that actually only really does work because of the scale. But there's no, there are many, many others. But, but but with Bacon, you just don't get that. No, no matter how far back you go, it still is bizarre, chaotic. Yeah. Um, and that's because Bacon's pursuing a different diagram yeah. to Suzanne. I, I wonder if... I, I still don't quite understand what that diagram is. How you can get resolution on it? How you can, if if that's possible, in the same way that you you, you do with Suzanne, the, the balance between chaos and the germ of uh, order that comes out of that. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe, maybe I mean the the series is I think something that Deleuze highlights is one way in which resolution happens. In is it that, that what's happening is that more that the point of the disruption. It's not that the, the senses are being disrupted in that when it looks about the um, notion of painting the Sahara Desert in his head. I mean, that's just that's just a, a, a it doesn't make sense. But I say it's like an it's an impression that brings the other senses in with it. Mm-hmm. So the sense in which the disruption of cliche means that rather rather than being confronted with something that that demands that you see it only as visual and therefore once you once you get closer and sort of further away it makes sense and it doesn't mm-hmm. isn't demanding that you experience it as something that's just visual. Yeah. And a visceral, visceral, visceral. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So in a sense yeah. of what's being disrupted is the is the vision. Yeah. 
Isn't it clear he says not to render the visible, but to render visible? It, 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 I mean, this is almost used as a mantra throughout the logical sensations, this idea in play of that, you know, the, the task of the modernist artist is no longer just the straightforward rendering of the visible, but actually to render the invisible visible, to bring to the surface, to bring to light all of the forces of kind of germination, kind of invisible under the surface, or even forces like time and gravity and so forth, essentially you know, invisible from representational perspective, actually visible, and that necessitates a, a move to, to abstract levels. Bacon's success compared to Zan is that Zan, all it demands is that you step back, whereas Bacon, you need something a bit more serious to. I think what I found interesting about Bacon is that it's like, because he is, like he says, he is figurative, that the, that the element of shock, etc., um, comes into play because of the mix between something that you can place as an image between something that's surreal, that, and that is the mix there that creates the shock. And I was thinking maybe that that's what distinguishes him from someone like Cezanne, where you clearly have an idea of, of something that you're meant to kind of understand. And I think that's what, what for me sets Bacon apart, like distinctly. I just don't know how to explain that. Well, one of the, one of the ways that sort of one of the one of the tropes that Deleuze talks about in Bacon is very evident is is um, the degree to which there is the created kind of hybrid, often with the human figure and an animal. So it's almost as if you know the, the, the human figure is caught in a moment of becoming animal, becoming kind of you know, monkey, becoming kind of dog becoming tiger um, and th you often get this kind of imperceptible kind of melding um, you know, where you can't actually kind of separate out one or the other in his work um, you know so the, the figuration is not it's not just it's not just a matter of, of playing around with the human form and suggesting sort of you know kind of Deformations of human form, but actually, uh, it's it's transformative, metamorphic, turning the human form into something. Yeah, because that's what's interesting about because it's not it's not abstract, and so like I want I want to hesitate and say something like Pollock, you could say, oh well, you know, what what is it that's conceptualised, or what is going on in that piece? And there's yeah, there's something very different about Bacon for me because it's because of that. Mm. Because I I wouldn't want to be him. You, you say that uh, the, the, the response is a, a degree of shock, but it could also just be a degree of, I guess the response could be, just how did that happen? When you see this becoming animal, yeah. how did you get from there to there? That's my, my response to it. I don't know, it's really shocked. I mean, I think that's what it's supposed to do. Because it's something yeah. that you, you yeah. can't, can't yeah. Yeah. it's not concrete as to what, what it is. Yeah, but that demands, I guess, new, a new concept in you. And I think uh, the creation of new concepts is what specifically uh, makes it so interesting to Deleuze, though, is um, the bacon, because you can't explain what's happening to those figures and those heads through reference purely to what's in the painting, they've all become potential assemblages. So trying to paint the Sahara into the jaw, you get this weird connection between like a geographical distance and something in a head your understanding throws you out to other places. 
um, the, I mean, the, the purpose of the diagram is specifically to point outside the mm -hmm. liberation. Mm -hmm. Is it outside or is it imminent? I think he's always he's always interested in discovering kind of limit points, isn't he, within the figure. I mean, you know, he's, it's clear that Bacon is fascinated. Um, one, one that comes to mind, one limit point is in Dago. Um, he's fascinated by those pictures of Dago's um, women where they're the, the bathers, where they're bending over. And you, he says there's one extraordinary painting by Dago where the spinal cord is almost bursting out through the back of this woman. He says it's just so extreme. Um, and he sort of says in some sense that he's always fascinated by uh, bringing the human figure to that point of limit actually going out. So, you know, ba when Bacon comes to actually kind of make a painting that directly references this painting by Descartes, you know, the, the spine actually is, you know, absolutely kind of burst through, through, the, through, through the... But it, he's absolutely fascinated with these kind of limit points. He's fascinated with limit points between human and animal. You know, at what point is there a kind of melding of resemblance between a human face and a, you know, a kind of dog? Um, do you think the first thing to let's uh, link to design, in the sense that the sort of this, the, the extremities, the the sense of something becoming sensible, you know, tactile, yeah. the the ultimately foreign, the thing that has to be touched. Do you think that that's it's that sense that it demands appropriation by the viewer? Because that's what's, what's going to it demands appropriation. What sense? Well, I mean that um, sort of yeah. the idea of, of the the movement, yeah, the movement of the figures is bursting out, mm -hmm. demands the, the sort of the, the tactile comprehension, right? the yeah. bring it back into shape, or yeah. at least to, to understand its its uh, sort of cancerous bursting out. Mm -hmm. Is that not the sense in which the the viewer is the viewer is sort of brought in as, as the what I always found with, with Bacon is particularly the faces what always really gets me in the sense that we, we have this just a incredibly um, you know, innate ability just to recognise faces automatically and so do understand you know, people's facial expressions and just, you know, this whole thing about faciality and what the, the, this, this diagrammatic <coughs> component just completely doesn't collapse that to pieces mm -hmm. but in the sense that not that the faces become unrecognisable, but the fact that the precisely there is this 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 contradiction between the demand to understand what the expression says and the inability. Mm -hmm. Well, well, I think not a proof. Sorry, sorry no, correct. No, but isn't that appropriation? I mean, isn't isn't that what I'm thinking? I mean, maybe I'm waiting to desire appropriation. You here's this sort of radical. Um, rupture of, of what I expect and here's my sense of my well, I think, I think the way that Deleuze uh, understands that is that he introduces the, uh, this distinction by um, excavating um, a, 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 a conceptual pair from aesthetic discourse that has that had kind of been forgotten about and it's, a, it's the conceptual pair of the haptic and the optic from Regal and Voringer that he excavates and it is this idea that actually there is a kind of there is an entirely different way of seeing that Regal and Boringer picked up on that is actually much more in accordance with sort of earlier 
you know, prehistoric and kind of ancient forms of art, particularly Egyptian art, for example, that is haptic, and which is much more to do with almost a kind of tactile way of seeing, a kind of, you know, it's almost like the eye becomes a kind of hand, you know, the surface of a hand that is reaching and touching. And the, the impetus for that, the, you know, Regal and Boringer argue that the impetus for that, particularly amongst like primitives and the ancients, according to Boringer and, uh, and Regal, is that that the, these that the people that produced that art were confronted by a world that was uh, disrupted, that was falling apart, and that needed they needed to sort of to create through their art a sense of cohesion, and that that involved this kind of almost kind of tactile holding together of the world. Um, but then that gives that gives rise, sort of historically, then to the dominance of the optical, and the haptic kind of falls out of uh, of kind of use. But he he Deleuze excavated precisely because he says no, it's appropriate to what Bacon's doing. He's, he's disrupting the optical to such an extent that it actually is provoking our our haptic senses. Is that in the logical Yeah. 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 Wolfgang Mazurs talks about um, uh, pickpocket film by Gresson uh, mm-hmm. and the notion of the, um, the hands. You know, there's a big scene of, of the scene of the whole uh, very complicated where they, they, they do these big robberies where they all pass wallets around. And it's all extremely dexterous and sort of flicking over the hands and it's all in deep coats. And it's incredible. It's, it's ridiculous. It's like, a, um, like you see how a, a stage magician does a trick. And he describes um, the cutting up of the space in the garden walls extremely significant you know, the hands that cut up the space and not the eyes yeah. and that's what he finds significant yeah. so I wonder if you think that's linked to them. Yeah, I think, I, yeah I think so I think you know the, 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 the coexistence of visual elements figure, the, visually figural elements in, in Bacon's work with manual intrusions you know is this solicitation of, of a kind of haptic way, a tactile way of seeing that you know that what and that I think this comes back to what what is the nature of the shock, what is the nature of the disruption of Bacon's work? Well, Deleuze says it, it is it, it's precisely because it is so disruptive to um, representational optical norms that it actually provokes this kind of different way of of, of seeing that is linked to the tactic and uh, tactile and, and the haptic. Here in Bone today, the haptic just disappearing into metaphor, right? I mean, there's, I mean, the haptic is, is specifically non-optic. The haptic isn't yeah. new optics. No, that's and right. And if, uh, if what's, uh, what makes these pieces uh, more immediately interesting in terms of uh, in terms of haptics, um, what I'm saying. Um, in, in terms of the haptic, is that by uh, not giving a, a stable uh, Point at which to focus it, focus on the person, not giving it a steady privilege, just a reserve it stand. It's 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 constantly with the body shifting, the eyes refocusing, the muscles are moving, the movies try to take in everything at once. Maybe the haptic sides yeah. are relating to things, and rather than finally cognizing it as image. On on a completely unrelated thing, um, <coughs> things that interested me with this. I'm not. Um, I can't profess to have any great understanding of uh, what's going on with the Bacon stuff. But it's just watching the images go by and mm-hmm. how interesting it is what, what happens once when Deleuze is writing without Batali looking over his shoulder. Um, so if, if we think about all of uh, Deleuze's pieces, he's written on masochism um, from the 
fairly crazy young one that might read a book and so on. Um, Deleuze, uh, Deleuze spends a lot of time uh, considering masochism as a way of uh, reconfiguring the body's ability to feel sensation mm -hmm. and, uh, and escaping the, um, the, uh, the subject that's created through this organized body. And then in, in A Thousand Plateaus, suddenly we get the, the, uh, we're told that actually the, um, the, the masochist's body is this, is this botched body of our organs, mm -hmm. a failed attempt mm -hmm. to, escape, um, to escape some form of uh, subjectification via reorganizing the body. And then suddenly we come back to a, a painter whose who's paintings, a lot of the time, seem to, uh, first of all, um, express a huge amount of pain and horror that's uh, going on through them. And um, second of all, most of that pain and horror doesn't seem to be sadistically applied to the, uh, to the objects in the uh, painting. It's, uh, it's, it seems to be partially human or fully human figures are stretching and deforming themselves mm -hmm. in bizarre acts. Yeah. And it seems that, that if, if, even if it's not theorized as such, there's, there's a uh, kind of gleeful return to uh, to, to masochism and, the, and uh, pain, which seems to disregard this idea of botching that was mm. happening earlier in, in A Thousand Plateaus. Although, although is, is the logic of sensation constantly until the time it's 81? You'd have to work out yeah. the individual yeah. well, wouldn't you? Yeah. Because, uh, I, I mean, clearly, um, at the point of what is philosophy in the chapter on art, mm -hmm. is the references to Bacon are extremely limited. Um, extremely limited. And they're actually just limited to, uh, from memory um, to just countering Merle Ponty's idea of flesh. Um, that's all. Um, and by this stage, it's clear that. Bacon is turning to other um, artists, other painters, um, at, for his paradigm of, of um, the diagrammatic painter that are non-figurative. I mean, Christian, by this stage, it's Christian Bonaparte, French contemporary abstract painter that Deleuze is taking as his sort of paradigm, uh, I think, of the, the, the diagrammatic painter, rather than a painter that is still bound up with the figure. Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, if, if, if we think about the two books as close together, so in the absence mm -hmm. of Bacon in the Thousand Plateaus, then meaningful mm -hmm. ways more interesting. That's right. It's only a year apart because it's, it's Clay who's the, uh, yeah. the, the main painter who gets to look in on everything. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm kind of um, interested in kind of vitality and Leads us to believe he's got, and also if you look at the, the cracker, you know the where Fitzgerald is talking about his loss of that mm -hmm. Now I don't know what I'm thinking here, but the kind of um, in, in Bacon's work, the rich, you can feel that vitality, even though the subject matter is, you know, kind of contradicting that. And it's, it's a kind of there are so many contradictions and. In, within Bacon's work that kind of lead you to all these possibilities, I think. Which I think, I think that, that, that to the degree to which sort of <coughs> what, what Bacon is attempting to uh, 
on his own self-understanding, attempting to sort of achieve in this world, and the degree to which he achieves it, he is incredibly harsh. And I think he would he would indeed sort of stand by the idea that, that the majority of his work actually, you know, is sort of quite botched. You know, the degree to which it has these sort of pathic components to them, um, uh, and, and sort of pathic re- resonances to them. I think Bacon would be quite happy to acknowledge that in, in that respect they're botched, they're failures. So if, if, if they can just be, you know, and, and certain of his paintings can just very easily just have certain narrative readings imposed over the top of them, you know, ones he didn't destroy. And, you know, and there's a bit that I didn't show, which is like Bragg and, and Bacon in the tape looking at slides of his work. And Bacon sort of says, you know, I think really there's only about sort of four or five paintings actually that I painted that are, 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 are really successful. You know, the, the, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was only going to say the, the painting of the Pope that's uh, in the second. Is that Pius? Yeah, no, that's the Velasquez. Yeah, it's after the Velasquez. Yeah. I mean, the original painting was received very badly by the Pope because he said. Can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it was too realistic. What, Velasquez? Yeah. yeah. So, sorry, which, which point? Who's famous? What's that? Yeah. Oh, it's what? Yeah. 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 It's well known, you know, from, from sort of biographies of Bacon's life, that he that he was a masterpiece. Um, and you know, and there, there are certain points in the painting you can see, see that, that taste is reflected. I mean, you know, Bacon himself is quite circumspect about it, but when he's asked by Bragg, he says, you know, I have certain tastes. And the, all he'll say in the interview is that he has a taste for men. Um, but what he doesn't say is that, you know, for years and years and years, his sort of tastes are for ex- the pursuit of extreme forms of masculinity, very extreme forms. Um, you know, which, which, you know, it, it's not that you're sort of seeing sadomasochistic kind of acts, like you say. It's, it's almost like you know the isolated figure put through kind of, you know, great kind of extreme sort of defamation trials and pain and so forth. There's nothing symbolic about it. It's not symbolic no. masochism. That's, no, that's no, why it's not, ma- right. um, not botched masochism. Oh, I mean, no, it's really no, happy. I don't think for a moment that the paintings are meant to be a dialogue on, on a monologue on masochism or on sadism. Um, the, the idea of botching I was talking about was, I think it's interesting because yeah. it to reject masochism yeah. in, the, in a thousand yeah. times only then to seem to come back to this, this interest here. I think it's quite interesting is, is that of all the painters who do the sorts of things Deleuze is interested in, the one, the one that he fixes on is, is Bacon. And, and there's the obvious element of recognition here, because if Deleuze wasn't a masochist, he was a hell of a boy, you know, it's so one of the two he falls into. Um, and it can't just be coincidence. Then. Mm. Well, mm. I want to say more about um, the artist. Like, if, if you see as an artist, like you said, Bacon, he got rid of lots of canvases. But I see that as an artist, as someone saying there isn't—I haven't created the moment there, and I would want to talk about the moment. <coughs> and so that's why I—I I, 
for me it's quite clear like he, yeah fair enough that he sees only very like very few masses paintings as as um, as successful mm. because he's using the lap he's using Kantian kind of language there it's like it's successful because of an artist in terms of some kind of intentionality there he's like there is a moment and you can see that moment which why for me I can see like when you see those he's saying this no, you don't need a narrative it's just a painting um but it's all about the shock but yeah but it is shock and he is implementing these notions of masochism <coughs> etc but with those he's creating these moments and I, I would want to say that, you know, corporates and masochism or even ideas to do with like you know, transfiguring human forms, etc. aside, it is about him a moment. Mm -hmm. I don't know but how far people want think, to take that. Though. I think masochism is interesting because the masochism doesn't have to be, have to be represented in this. And this is, this is why I, I find Bacon's work so interesting in terms of dealing with a human form and that this is this element of almost kind of primal sympathy uh, with the with the figure in the painting, you know, you can, you can almost feel the, the discomfort and the pleasure. It doesn't have to be represented, you know, and it, it almost kind of parallels Deleuze's work on cinema, where he says that you know, the cinema taps directly into the sensory motor mm -hmm. complex. There's a sense in which, you know, Bacon's picture taps directly into our ways of apprehending, you know, other people. It's yeah. yeah. trying to pull you for a different path, though. Um, it's the haptic path. I mean, when you look at the masochism there, the meat, uh, the meat is, um, you don't feel like you can explore that meat through vision. You, you feel like you actually have to explore it by getting your hands on it and the shapes and feeling the densities and how it relates to the bone and how it falls off the bone. There's nothing visual about it. It's escaping that whole visual representative symbolic masochism that by pursuing a different diagram, by forcing us to go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. The meat is really the big difference there. Well, the bone kind of is, is taken away in a sense, isn't it? The bone is removed, and even you know, the kind of just hangs the flesh, hangs it. it. The bone isn't important in a sense. Well, he talks. Deleuze introduces <coughs> sort of the idea that uh, you know, I talked a little bit about this rhythmic interplay. Um, he talks about the sort of there being kind of two opposing kind of rhythms um, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that are at work in, in Bacon's work. We, we talk about the sort of, you know, the, 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 sort of ascent, the, the rhythm of ascension, which is often you know, configured through kind of bone-like armatures in, in Bacon's work. Um, and then that's counterposed by a kind of force of descent. You know, so flesh is always kind of falling down, kind of dripping but actually, you know, what Bacon is interested in is just that kind of experimenting with different sorts of interplays between those kind of rhythms of ascent and descent. Um, actually, rather than anything. But it's always a tension, isn't it? Yeah, it's always, it's always a tension. as well. That the, the images feel very religious. They, they feel very Catholic to me. You know, the kind of that sort of the way he. <laughs> no, not, not just the Pope. I just think how he positions the things. But this is essentially this is essentially what Deleuze is saying. You know, has actually marked the reception of Bacon's work consistently. Is you know you, how many books have been written about sort of 
you know, Bacon's Irish background, you know, he's sort of um, absorbed Catholicism and all the rest of it. And Deleuze says this is utterly irrelevant. Um, no, absolutely. When you look at religious thinking, it's that problem, isn't it? Of how do you get a transcendent modifier or modulator into painting now uh, during an atheist age? You know, because, and he talks about El Greco. So it can, you know, contrast Bacon to El Greco. It says El Greco, you know, utilised a transcendent modifier in the form of kind of God uh, as as a way of modulating the figure. So there's an extraordinary painting of like the ascent of souls into heaven over the, the sort of you know the, the the body. I can't remember who who it is. The Count Orgas, isn't it? And as the figures kind of ascend into the sort of transcendent realm, they are pulled apart. They are kind of distended and twisted into the most extraordinary forms. And, and Deleuze says, well, the problem now is what, what serves the role of that modulator for the figure uh, to unlock kind of other figural possibilities, given that the transcendental modulator just is not uh, an option any longer. Um, and, that, and this is precisely comes down to the function of, of, of the discovery of, of, of a haptic manual diagram. Um, yeah, can I, can I maybe ask, how, how do you simulate the distinction that you were drawing so earlier between the flesh and the bone as being fun, fundamentally having a role to play in the, in the um, perception of the piece? How do you simulate that to the diagram? It seems to me that there's something else. That's, that's, my, that's my slight problem with the losing interpretation. But if you, if you bring it all down to the notion of disrupting a diagram, I don't see how you get from the diagram to sensory, the difference between the senses. I don't see how you get the richness mm-hmm. of the, the, the difference within the painting from that sort of disrupting the... Right. I mean, that seems to be very, very formal, very, very basic, very mathematical. Mm-hmm. And how do you get from that the, the different modes of diagram? Do you think that's a problem? No, I do. I do think that's a problem. I, I do think, you know, there's an awful lot that when, when one reads... Bacon himself talking about the use of this diagram or whatever that is very vague. What, you know, that, that he, he starts to talk about instinct. Starts to talk, you know, because I think David Sylvester says to him, "Well, what's the difference between you and your, you know, you, he, in great sort of language of pity, and your cleaning woman, you know, who comes to clean your studio, doing the same thing? So you, you know, you pick up a kind of lump of paint and you throw it at the canvas, okay, and it lands." And, uh, and so couldn't your cleaning woman do the same couldn't she just come in and, what do you and just chuck paint at it and maybe says mm, yeah okay, yeah, she could do that but she, she perhaps wouldn't be able to do what I could do with it or she perhaps wouldn't have the sort of ju- the ability to judge for, she wouldn't have the, the instincts to you know and, and then you know you move into sort of that, that sort of very vague register then of well what is it to productively utilise the diagram you know, what's involved in productively utilising the diagram? This is the problem is that we're talking about the clear distinction between um, flesh and bone. Yeah. I remember the, the very, um, very expressive way we talked about it before. But the specific problem that I have is that I don't think you can just leap from diagram to some kind of 
uh, ability of the artist, some kind of stability uh, genius of the artist. I mean, you're talking about something that is is perceptible to all of us. This is something about the work of artists perceived, not something about not something that the artist brings. Right? This yeah, but the artist negotiates. That's the point. Is that is that what's in, and that's what I have a problem with. I guess I do have a major problem. Is what's involved in what Deleuze talks about as this necessary act of negotiation with the material traits that are introduced and you know arise in the diagrammatic moment. What is it to actually negotiate? What what's the artist bringing? If you know outside of these vague allusions to some kind of instinctive sensibility. Well, you, you kind of you've got materials and you're working with materials, and the materials are informing you, mm. and you're informing the materials. So there's a kind of um, interplay yeah. that's happening. No, I, I understand that, but it's just that it's just that there's not a great deal here to suggest what what exactly that is. Um, yeah, but it's kind of I think when you. Did you say alchemy? Did you mention alchemy? Well, alchemy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's that's. Kind of, there was a kind of alchemy that goes on. There was a certain. Yeah, maybe it's a bit kind of twee to say. Yeah, it's a sort of. Sort of. I don't know. Indiscernible sort of. Sort of uh, quality of the artist. He's trying to sort of reify and sort of extract this determinate quality, which A makes you sort of able to produce his work. I mean, I've got a theory. To destroy. I've, I've got a theory. <laughs> which may be completely mad and wrong. Um, so the diagram would be something that's. Um, it, it's essentially a set of possibilities for getting from point A to point B to get to the points of flesh and bone. You know, we recognise that flesh and bone relates in a certain way, and you you expect to get from one point to another point. And the artist then introduces to those necessary connections, those chain of connections, uh, lots of other connections. And this is what Bacon does. He introduces um, overwhelming set of connections, making everything connected. And that's essentially what the chaos is in there. It's just overloading the diagram with connections. But he says it's deeply ordered. That's, that's because um, in his passage to chaos into this overloading of connectivity um, th there's always roots into that chaos mm. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the artist is always selecting, there's always a selection yeah. of yeah, a way into right. chaos yeah. but it's, oh, it's, but it's, just, but it's also because I don't know if you look, even Kant and try and actually formalise exactly what it was which sort of enabled the artist to produce the work and it's simply to describe an indeterminacy into Sort of this sort of singular universality, yeah, which, as, which can never be subsumed yeah. by our sort of cognitive yeah. faculty, which sets that sort of interplay off. So even sort of Kant wouldn't try and sort of this is the definition of genius, and this sort of quality has allowed so and so mm. to do so and so. Mm. So, but the, the, there is there is that's not what Deleuze is saying. Man. No, no, no. I know, no, no, it's not. I know it's not. What you're saying is like <laughs> sort of what he does, and he don't. He doesn't say how he goes about in a sense. Doing it or why? Well, he does. He does concretize it a little, but you know, again, it's it's frustratingly kind of um, uh, 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 kind of fast the way in which Deleuze does, does it. But he introduces Pierce's idea of the language of analogy, you know, sort of an analogical kind of language, um, you know, where you know it's it's a language of kind of instinctive association that's being kind of formed, and you know, and he he introduces that idea right at the end 
to sort of, as, as in a sense, to sort of suggest, well, that's what's emergent from, uh, from, the, from the diagram, is some form of new language, new logic of sense. Yeah, that that's, is, that's, that, no, that's fine. Yeah. It doesn't explain exactly why, in a sense, these no, sure. take hold and why there's yeah. this to this. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I go back to this Don't vitality as well, yeah. because I think vitality is a kind of key to how the artist pulls things together. There's a kind of <coughs> energy that's happening that um, is imminent in the work, and I think that, that, you know, that, that, bring something into play where you stop. Like when I work, I start, I, I, I choose certain materials and then I work with them in a certain way and then, you know, and, and like bacon, you know, you can do something and it just doesn't work and you just throw it away because it's just, you know it's not going to work. You know, you can spend two days on it, it will never work. There's a, so there's a kind of energy that's building and accumulating that kind of drives. I, I'm thinking of Kant's, like, the artist giving, creating the his own wall, like a kid in a wall. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm thinking it is. Well, it's not what Bacon was even saying, applying at the beginning of the interview, saying, I don't want to learn these old techniques. Absolutely, that's what I do when I do my work. In, that is, yeah. I, I said that. Yeah, I think you can't but explain how it comes about or why he chooses this particular sort of laying down of the law or, yeah, it was, yeah. On page 81, there's this, this, this whole paragraph related to counting anticipations of perception and saying how a, a zero intensity is first produced and then there's a descent into difference and complexity from that. Uh, I, that's a fascinating paragraph. Did you know? Mm, yeah. So it's. Yeah, but there is a law produced. The law is the diagram. Can you read it out, Robert? Do you think? Sorry? Can you read it out? <laughs> Thank you. It's quite long. Is this just okay. some of it? Because no one's got um, Right. Why is the difference in level not experienced in the other direction of the rise? So you say that it's always a fall from um, this uh, zero in, uh, point of, I guess, uh, consistency or law. I think that's how I'm what it means, because the form must not be interpreted in a thermodynamic matter, manner as if it produced an entropy, a tendency to equalise the lowest level. So it's not going to zero, it's coming from zero and then heading towards complexity to difference uh, and again entropy. On the contrary, the fall exists to affirm the difference in level as such. All tension is experienced in a fall. Kant laid down the principle of intensity when he defined it as instantaneously apprehended magnitude. It goes on. Uh, represented by its approximation <laughs> and negation <laughs> equals zero. Thank you. Sorry, not well read. If, that, if that's right, if, if there is a, a specificity to, to the language of analogy, the language of sense, the logic of sensation, that is absolutely part and parcel of what Bacon is doing as this sort of giving himself, you know, in counting, providing his own sort of law. Um, why, why Bacon? Why? 
um, you know, as, as, as I said before, like, there's just creating moments that you could just pick up any of this yeah. music. Mm. Just talking about, you know, just using materials mm. and just like scraping and throwing and all to do with paint. You, because there aren't many artists who do that kind of cat, you know, that. Because this book is not. There are many. I wouldn't say so. Well, in terms of using it to create a certain moment, in the way that we have, as I said earlier, really early on, in terms of. This is traversing all these different sort of connections. Um, but then, how, in a sense, that came about is sort of inexplicable. I don't think mm. I even try to. Well, uh, this is really, <laughs> I don't know why he chose why he choose Bacon, but um, just one random connection I have, which is the intensity of it, which may be in the intensity of that experience of the moment that comes about in mm. the Bacon. Um, it's like you are creating this this fullness. That um, like Nietzsche talks about having like this intense that you have to um, you have to get bigger and bigger each time to fully appreciate that. And I was thinking maybe that it's just random connection there, but I just thought maybe Bacon is slightly less attached to opening that kind of intensity mm. up. Because in the development of what is Rotterdam is about, the, almost as if it's a criterion of um, the novelty of uh, sort of laying down the conceptual say, sort of this intensification of life. So in a sense, I don't know, maybe it's for Bacon's conducive to that criteria, like sort of... Um, well, I think, I think, I think one, one of the things that's been useful uh, to find out about the book is that, is that it almost kind of holds itself in, into some kind of uh, relationship with a very influential article um, written on Shazam by Lawrence Gowan called The Logic of Sense. Um, by, by Lawrence Gowing. And what Gowing argues in that article is that Shazam um, represents the, the kind of contemporary kind of unique painter who is picking up on a kind of historical task of painting that had been forgotten. Mm, yeah. you know, that, that, and that in some sense, you know, that he has all of these precursors, but he has no contemporaries, according to Gowing. Uh, and it seems as if Deleuze is sort of saying something like that in this book about Bacon by linking Bacon right the way back to sort of Egyptian base relief and at certain moments in great kind of religious paintings in some sense to suggest that there is a kind of kind of path being pursued here uh, in painting that actually, you know, Bacon just represents the fully kind of flourished contemporary you know, presentation of it, but and you know, and, and it's also extremely articulate about you know what, what, what it is to do, with, um, which is why I choose. It. I mean, you know, I think how, how genuine do you think um, in, in the interview Bacon's uh, statement that this is just because photography happened and painting just lost its wide rationale, or is it more than that? I don't think it is just down to um, to photography actually. I think it's you know there, there are much broader kind of concerns with flattening down of experience. And I think that Bacon is so concerned about. And I think as a human being, <laughs> it would appear that he's you know pursuing all sorts of ways to, to sort of resist flattening down of experience. But that's not just something about through cinema and photography. And of course, Bacon is absolutely fascinated. Mm -hmm with the degree to which cinema and photography don't flatten that experience. 
um, you know, that, that, that you know he talks with with Bragg about you know the fact that he is utterly transfixed by certain kinds of images of wildlife, the capturing of moments of you know the lion after the kill. He's, uh, the, he, in some sense, he sort of says that's what I'm trying to capture. Um, but it's just that the way in which he's trying to capture it, it means that he has to circumvent the sort of you know the, the, the sort of the means of photography in order to get to, to kind of unlock that kind of visceral um, sensation of, that he's trying to. But I but I wouldn't say just all you know, he does he does say things like that during the interviews. I think. Yeah. 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 Ye